Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I am delighted to say I am here with Dirk Kirkpatrick joining us uh, from a very wet Northern California. Uh, Doug is the author of, of this book, Beyond, uh, is that going to focus there? Uh, maybe not. Beyond Empowerment, the age of self-managed, uh, the age of the self-managed organization. He's a founder of D'Artagnan Advisors and a co-founder of Vibrancy. Uh, one of his current clients is the Morningstar Self-Management Institute. Uh, for those who heard episode 232 uh, with Paul Green Jr., uh, he was on the show. So it's great to have another view on that uh, extraordinary organization. Uh, Dirk, I'm oh, sorry, Doug, 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 welcome to the show. Thank you, Richard. A pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, Good to see you this morning. Uh, it's fantastic to see you. Um, so I wonder if for the benefit of our audience and for me, I mean, I heard a little bit of your backstory before the show, but it'd be wonderful if you could sort of fill us in on a little bit of the story that got you to this uh, interest in, in self-management and the work that you do now. Oh, great. Thanks for asking. I, uh, I uh, started working with uh, an entrepreneur here in Northern California uh, in the 1980s uh, named Chris Rufer. And uh, Chris uh, was the founder of a uh, high-tech uh, food manufacturing operation here in Northern California in the early 1980s. And I joined his core team as a financial controller. Um, and in those days, we wore a lot of hats. So uh, I was involved in um, accounting and uh, finance and HR and IT and risk management and legal affairs and regulatory affairs and uh, sometimes production and marketing and other things. But uh, it was a great experience. And it was uh, uh, very successful startup uh, grew from zero to about a hundred million dollars during the time I was there uh, till the late 1980s and then uh, in uh, 1990 um, Chris started a, a new company uh, and that company was called Morningstar and so I joined his core team at that startup uh, fulfilling much the same functions as the prior company financial controller etc um i joined the company in uh february uh, of 1990 uh, as he was starting construction on the the first uh, uh morning star factory and um so uh we were working uh this core team of 24 people mostly engineers and uh, mechanics electricians uh, we were working quite long hours uh you know 100 hour weeks trying to get this factory up and running uh, before July, and so um, it was quite uh, quite dynamic, stressful environment. Uh, but in March of that year, um, Chris uh, came into the little little farmhouse in which we were operating and said, "I'd like to have a meeting of colleagues and and discuss, um, you know, how to organize the company. I've got some ideas around that, and I'd, I'd like to kick them around with the team." And so we said, "Fine." And so we met at night in a, a construction trailer out on the job site, and we sat around in a circle and on steel folding chairs, and Chris handed out a document called the Morning Star Team Principles. And essentially, they boiled down to two things. Uh, the first principle was that people shouldn't use force or coercion against other people. 
And the second principle was that people should keep the commitments they make to each other. Okay, so we discussed and debated and talked about these principles for a couple of hours. And and at the end of the evening, we just kind of looked around the circle at each other and realized we didn't have any objections to these principles. They, they seemed self-evident. Uh, and so we adopted them as the governance of the enterprise. And when we walked out of that trailer, we were a self-managed enterprise. Um, meaning that uh, if you adopt the principle of not using force, it, it means you are abandoning uh, command and control. You're abandoning command authority. Um, it means no one can tell another person to stop doing X and start doing Y. Everything is accomplished by request and response. Um, it means there are no titles. It means that uh, there are no um, specific uh, grants of position power uh, where people have power over other people. And so uh, that was interesting. Um, and the idea of keeping commitments is, is pretty fundamental. Uh, these principles are fundamental to law. In fact, the idea of not using force is the foundation of uh, all criminal law everywhere in the world. Every law against assault, battery, theft, burglary, kidnapping, murder, and all the rest is based on that principle. And the second principle of uh, keeping commitments is foundational to civil law, contract law, uh, and all that body of law. So um, keeping commitments quite fundamental, and uh, it's basically keeping promises. So uh, we left the trailer, self-managed enterprise, uh, went back to work the next day, had a lot of work to do. This was March of 1990. Um, so... Um, at that point, we had, uh, and this was a, uh, in U.S. dollar terms, a $27 million factory. It would be double that today. Mm. Um, was not a trivial project by any means. Um, and we had thousands of acres, hectares of tomatoes coming up out of the ground, up and down the state of California for hundreds of miles. Um, we had to hire hundreds of people to operate the factory and drive the trucks. Um, we had hundreds of contractors on the job site, 24-7, uh, constructing, fabricating, welding, building. Uh, and we had vital equipment uh, on ocean cargo freighters out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean waiting to go through the Panama Canal, uh, without which we couldn't operate the factory. So we had a lot of moving parts that had to come together in a, about three months. And so... Uh, uh, it was uh, quite the dynamic, uh, high high impact environment. Uh, but on July 16th, we threw the switch, turned on the factory, and produced about 90 million pounds. I think that's about 45 million kilograms of industrial tomato concentrate for the world market. And we essentially changed the cost structure of our entire industry. Um, and uh, we did it without a single human boss. No bosses, no managers of others, no supervisors, no vice presidents, no titles, no command authority. Self-managed individual professionals collaborating and working together as a team uh, pulled that off based on those two foundational principles that I described. And so uh, there we were. Uh, we uh, uh, went on to grow. 
Um, we expanded operations up and down the supply chain toward customers in remote warehouses across North America and toward the supply in terms of harvesting and farming and transplanting and trucking. In the process, we became the largest tomato processor in the world. We built a, three factories ultimately. Um, and I believe everyone in North America has eaten our product. It goes into everything you can think of in the grocery store from ketchup mm. to salsa, pizza sauce, spaghetti sauce, uh, barbecue sauce, and all the rest. Uh, millions more around the world. Um, wouldn't be surprised if you've eaten our product, Richard, it goes yeah. all yeah. over the world. Uh, but we've never in 33 years deviated from our two core principles of Morningstar. Uh, don't use force and keep commitments. Wow. I mean, that is just an extraordinary story. And, and for, for people who are familiar with the self-management principles that have that view, oh, well, maybe it works in a small software team or, you know, maybe it works in certain, certain scenarios. Um, this really is, is the proof that it can work anywhere. And, you know, the, the operation of that complexity, um, to be able to pull that off um, just based on those principles and, and no formal hierarchy you know, really is you know, a test of these principles in action and, uh, and testament to the power of working in this way. Yeah, and that's what I tell people, Richard. Uh, you know, if a sprawling, uh, noisy, dusty, um, large agricultural-based manufacturer can adopt simple principles of self-management and apply them at scale, why would any tech company or startup or finance company want to organize the same way we organized in the 1840s uh, when information moved at the at the speed of Morse code? Right, right, right. Um, so I'm so what was the 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 context for Chris's decision? Was it was it he just had this flash of inspiration in the night or was it that the way you were working up until that point uh, wasn't working? Like where did that meeting come out of? Thank you. Thank you. I think it came out of uh, both of those things you just mentioned. Uh, Chris uh, is a very free thinker and he is uh, really deeply believes in these principles. Um, uh, they're they're very idealistic principles, uh, and yet they're fundamental to human operation because <clears throat> there, uh, if you think of the principle of gravity, it never changes. Um, <clears throat> we can test it, and scientists do test the theory of gravity on an annual basis, but um, <clears throat> the theory of gravity generally works every time you test it. So. Um, I'm not going to step off a tall building because I'm quite sure that the, the principle of gravity will be operating. It's the same logic applies to human social principles. So are we better off as human beings if we don't use force against each other? Um, Chris and, and I and many, many people believe, yes, that is true. We are better off uh, as people, as societies, when we do not use force against other people. Um, we create more opportunity and more space for happiness and harmony and prosperity and voluntary interaction in the absence of force. Um, so that principle uh, exists, whether we choose to acknowledge it existence or not is a different question. And 
obviously, as you look around the world, many, many people, many leaders don't acknowledge that principle. And so that creates a lot of suffering. Um, the idea of keeping commitments, keeping promises um, is also uh, quite fundamental. Uh, if we imagine a world where everyone did everything they said they were going to do, that would be an amazing world. Yeah. And uh, we know that's not realistic. We know that's not reality, but that's not really the point. The point is the closer we approach that ideal state, the better off we are as human beings, the more space we open up for human happiness and harmony and prosperity and teamwork and all the good things of life. Um, going back to the first principle, imagine a world where everyone abandoned the use of force. We wouldn't need armies or navies or police or locks on our doors. And of course, that's ridiculously unrealistic, but that, again, is not the point. The point is the closer we get to that ideal, the better off we are as human beings. And so the principle exists whether we um, utilize it or not. Um, and so Morningstar has chosen to deliberately align itself with what we think are the two most important principles of human interaction that, uh, that have the potential to create a better world, not just a better company, but a, a better society and a better world. And, and so Chris had been sort of meditating on these themes and it come to a head, right? He's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have to put this into action. Yeah, so to, to that part of your question, going back to the first company mm. we started in the 1980s, um, we uh, defaulted to the traditional uh, hierarchical pyramid structure of organization, okay. uh, just because that's what people did. I mean, that's that's how you or that's how you organize a company. Um, so we had uh, the typical pyramid with Chris at the top as the managing partner, and then we had a layer of managers of which i was one and then we had a marketing manager production manager quality manager and all the rest and then we had a layer of supervisors and then we had a layer of coordinators uh and then we had everyone else who did the actual work in the operation and so uh, what we found is it was quite problematic um, because chris had an open door policy uh, Any time a dispute a conflict an issue a problem arose anywhere in the pyramid People would go right to the top um, and, and avail themselves of the open door policy and make the entire structure of that bureaucracy irrelevant uh, and wasteful. Um, and so um, we noticed also that when people came to work and, and drove in, parked their cars and came into the, the workplace, uh, just realized that every one of those individuals is uh, managing themselves in their own personal lives. So they're all deciding uh, gigantic life-changing decisions on their own without a boss. They're deciding who to date, who to marry, where to go to college, what to do for a living, whether to have children or buy a car or house. All these giant decisions are made without a boss, but somehow when they enter the, the portal of the workplace, Suddenly, they're incompetent to do anything without a boss telling them what to do, which doesn't make any sense. If they know what to do at work and how to do it, uh, why do they need a boss? So we just started collecting these observations. Um, and one day, Chris was signing checks, and, and the way checks were generated was that um, 
a supervisor would issue a purchase order for a part or a machine and and then uh, the part or machine would show up and we'd have a receipt and then an invoice would come in the mail and then the clerk would match all those pieces of paper together and create a check and create a stack of checks for Chris to sign. One day he was signing checks and he came to one check uh, for a part that a supervisor had ordered and he said, well, why am I signing this check? A purchase order is a legally binding contract. Uh, I have no choice. I have to sign the check or, or I get sued. So I'm adding zero value to this process, this, this cumbersome process. Uh, so he brought the checks down to me and, and put them on my desk and asked me to sign the checks. And I said, that's great. That's fine. But that freed him up to do the, the more important strategic work for which he was there in the first place. And so we just started collecting these insights and realizing maybe there's a better way of doing things. And that's what led to him uh, approaching us in that farmhouse in uh, March of 1990 on the Morningstar project and saying, let's, let's uh, throw out the old playbook and figure out a different way of approaching business. And mm. so that's what we did. Right. And, and casting your mind back to, to that uh, that year, 1990, what were the first things that you noticed were different in the way that Morningstar operated, and and what did you find most challenging about that new way of operating? Well, <clears throat> that is a very interesting question because um, the funny thing about it is it didn't really change anything how <laughs> we were operating <laughs> because uh, because we were working. Uh, 100 hour weeks, uh, we, we didn't have time to really absorb and process, okay, now what does this mean for how I interact with my teammates tomorrow? It's like, oh, I've got a, a 500 things to do tomorrow. I still have to do those things, uh, but it really didn't change anything. Um, I would say uh, because that operation is a very seasonal operation, uh, when the operation sort of shut down for a repair and maintenance mode in the wintertime, that's when people could actually take a breath and start to think about and process uh, what adopting self-management really means or meant. And so um, that's when we started having conversations about how to approach conflict, uh, how, how to have uh, meaningful conversations with each other, how to advance the culture, uh, how to problem solve, how to analyze and how to innovate, those kinds of things in a self-managed environment. I'd say those conversations really didn't get underway until we shut down the factory that first year and had a chance to breathe and start right. to think about it. Yeah. Well, that may be an interesting place to start, right? The conflict piece, because that for people skeptical or just new to these ideas, like, yeah, that may be the first question to ask is, look, well, how do you deal with, let's say, somebody's not performing or there's a, you know, there's a problem, someone's like misbehaving in some way. Yeah, how, how do we deal with with conflict? Yeah. Well, going back to the the first principle of not using force, everything's accomplished by request and response and and so um we have this uh this idea of intersubjectivity we all have to work together and, and cooperate and communicate and so um 
Yeah, that goes for every company in the world. Um, so uh, if we uh, detect uh, an issue uh, and everyone uh, has an equal voice uh, and an equal right to speak, everyone's voice is uh, valued. Um, that's one of the artifacts of self-management. Uh, anyone that detects an issue in the environment, the work environment, um, <clears throat> has uh, an obligation to speak up and uh, address it. And so um, uh, we can see issues, perhaps, uh, hypothetically, of integrity or performance or both. And uh, we can ask another person for change. So um, I see that you're driving a forklift too fast in an unsafe manner. I'd like you to take a week off and take a forklift uh, safety class. Right. Could be one. Um, another example, I, I could see in the same circumstance, you're being unsafe on a forklift, I think uh, you should uh, culminate your services and find something else to do. So um, from that uh, perspective, any anyone can ask anything of anyone else in the workplace. Person has an obligation to respond. <clears throat> Sometimes people agree. Right. Sometimes people are asked to culminate their services and they agree. Right. And walk away. But uh, they may not agree, and that's fine. And so in that case, we have a process, a stepwise process, where a person can bring in a, a third-party mediator if the parties don't agree. Um, and they're, the job of that third-party mediator, it could be any other colleague, is just to listen to both sides and offer their best advice. So if that the step occurs... Uh, and the uh, person of whom the request is made still doesn't agree, uh, then uh, the parties can progress to a group of mediators called a panel of mediators. Their job is identical to that of the first mediator, just to listen to both sides and offer their best advice. And so if they agree, fine, they're done. Uh, if they negotiate some third option uh, that neither had thought of before, that's fine, they're done. But if they still fundamentally disagree, then uh, the parties have already agreed in advance by virtue of working there and subscribing to this process, that they will document their difference in writing and submit it to the president of the company for a final binding decision, uh, as would be done by an arbitrator. So this, uh, this process called gaining agreement uh, is... Uh, thousands of years old, very fundamental. Uh, it's uh, capable of resolving any conceivable difference of opinion between any two colleagues anywhere in the enterprise at any time, uh, if it's followed. And um, and uh, it's used, uh, I, everyone has an obligation to, to address issues directly one-to-one -one on a regular basis. Those conversations occur thousands of times a year. Um, probably hundreds of times a day during the work yeah. day. Um, occasionally it goes to a third party mediator. Uh, rarely it goes to a panel discussion and even more rarely it goes to the president. And that may be a handful of times a year. 
because people have a deep uh, abiding interest in resolving issues on their own directly with their fellow colleagues. And, and the uh, term du jour I, I hear uh, in the HR world is organizational adulting, uh, basically <laughs> yeah. treating people right. like adults in the workplace. Yeah. And uh, so this is uh, this is uh, perhaps the highest uh, form of organizational adulting. It's you're all adults work work it out, and if you can't, here's a process. But we expect you to work it out um, as much as you can. Yeah, that's interesting. We often hear that adult to adult culture, but it's still often employed within a in a hierarchy where people have got this boss you know, relationship, which is sort of fundamentally. An adult, right? Well, an adult we learn adult. It in, yeah, we learn it at an early age. We all grow up in families, and parents are the boss. And uh, go to school, a teacher's the boss. And we go to college, the professor's the boss. And work, do we have bosses? And military, we have bosses. So we're marinated in in bosses throughout our entire lives. So that. then we enter a workplace that's self managed. That that can be a little stressful for people. Right. Well, talking about that, then, what what did you personally find, if if at all, uh, challenging about that shift? Um, yeah, let's, let's take it on the on the conflict resolution side, or if there were other aspects that you found personally stressful or or perhaps challenging to adapt to. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it was interesting. Uh, you know, some people. Um, sort of, uh, you know, they adopt a way of working and, and they, they maybe intellectually understand the colleague principles and, and maybe even agree with them at some level. Um, but they, they don't take commitments as seriously as they should. And so uh, we had a, a situation where we did have an unsafe forklift driver at one point and uh there was a, a process of loading uh our, our product morningstar product on on flatbed trucks and the the product comes in uh, is packaged in uh bins about 48 inches square about four feet square mm. uh cubes that weigh uh, almost three thousand pounds a ton and a half and uh yeah, i was gonna so say what's that made <laughs> This is uh, heavy. Yeah, ton of the half. Yeah, these are these are large containers and bulk contain containers, and and so uh, we had a forklift driver was putting uh, these these bins on a flatbed truck and loading the truck, and and uh, he wasn't putting uh, chocks or blocks in front of the tires. So if that truck had moved in the process of loading it, it would have rolled the forklift over and perhaps killed the forklift driver and so right. i saw him doing this one time and I, and I pointed out i asked him to stop and uh, follow the safety procedures and block the tires and okay that's fine i'll do that great okay so uh okay i think problem solved i, I go out the next week and he's loading the trucks in the same old unsafe way and i, I said please you know follow the safety procedures and, and do it correctly Okay, fine, fine. So uh, the next week, or maybe it was a couple of weeks later, uh, I go out there and he had he had not done it uh, properly again, and he'd rolled over the forklift and was lucky to be alive. 
And uh, at that point, it's like you just kind of throw your hands up in the air and go, oh my gosh, I mean, are we, are we not a learning organization? What is, what is happening here uh, that you can't keep commitments to follow simple safe, safety procedures? And so uh, sometimes we found ourselves in, in situations where we think a problem solved uh, through direct communication and response, and, and then we find out, no, it, it really didn't get solved. And we destroyed it a $60,000 forklift. So, um, yeah, those kinds of challenges were, were I would say, frustrating. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually they resolve themselves. So those people either leave or they quit or they get asked to leave. But uh, and did you have to situation. ask him to leave? Was that your next uh, move? You know, I actually, it was so long ago. I can't remember exactly <laughs> how it resolved. But I, I just remember that forklift laying on its side on the ground and him yeah. walking around with bruises for the next couple of weeks. Right. <laughs> right. Well, maybe that was enough. <laughs> yeah. To, uh, solidify his commitment yeah, yeah. but I, I would say that i would say the other challenge is uh, uh people um remaining reserved and un feeling unfree to speak up and address issues directly um that is a challenge i think uh important conversations are are not engaged in because of our natural human reticence yeah. to uh uh, address issues and give uh, productive, uh, constructive feedback to our fellow uh, co-workers. Uh, there's a certain reticence and fear that goes along with that. It's much easier to just tell a boss or a supervisor to go fix that other person than it yeah. is to do it ourselves. And so um, that's kind of an ongoing challenge. Um, and, and I say, uh, you know, when, when people ask about that, I, I say that uh, it, the system is not perfect. Uh, and I would never claim that it is. It's not nirvana. But uh, we think the benefits outweigh uh, the costs. And certainly in terms of uh, undertaking large projects and in a self-managed way, um, with fluid, uh, agile teams uh, of self-managed professionals, uh, the benefits of that are, are extremely high. Uh, and avoiding the, what Gary Hamill calls the management tax of bureaucracy, those benefits are extraordinary. And so uh, we work through some of the challenges in order to reap and harvest the, the enormous benefits of self-management. Right. Well, let's switch to that then. What were, you know, what what are some illustrations of what you saw happening at, at Morningstar? Perhaps in contrast to the to the previous company you'd, you'd been at with Chris, um, that really demonstrate the benefits of this way of working. Well, people uh, were were um, we had a, a great project team at Morningstar uh, and. You can read about it in a book called Different Work by Dr. Lori Kane. Um, but we had a, a project team, three of the core members of that um, were a gentleman, uh, Gordy Gardner, Vince Nunes, and Bob Smith. Uh, Bob was an engineer. Uh, Vince was a, a, a world-class uh, fabricator, and Gordy was a, a great project manager. And uh, they worked with other colleagues as well. But uh, uh, any time there was a significant uh, project 
plant expansion, uh, new plant construction. Um, that team uh, was able to just uh, put the, the pedal to the metal and uh, get it done in a tremendously um, constructive, self-managed, speedy, agile, uh, problem-solving way uh, that just always led to uh, great outcomes and really allowed the company to build its second plant, which at that time became the largest uh, plant in the world, and then the third plant, um, and then help with a, an affiliated company uh, back in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. And so um, those kinds of uh, uh, fantastic results, uh, business expansion results, I think uh, were directly uh, tied to the idealistic uh, uh, principles of self-management and, and the freedom to just do great work. Yeah, so so reflecting on that, so, so you went from a startup to the largest processor in the world, right? And and how and right. how long? In what period of time is that? Well, to the largest in the world, um, ten years, fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't still. have the exact yeah. answer. That's yeah. uh yeah, that's a very fast rate of expansion to go from nothing to that, right? In a saturated industry, right? It's not like that, you know, it's not, not like it's a tech innovation, right? It's not like it's a brand new market. That's right. I mean, it's a consumer, it's a fundamental consumer commodity business. Yeah. And so it really can't grow faster than the population. <laughs> People only eat so much tomato product. And so, um, yeah, it, uh, it uh, went uh, very fast. And that's because, uh, largely because of the engineering. I mean, the plants are designed to be of a size that they are the most efficient plants in the industry. Uh, and so um, that, you know, lowers the cost structure, it lowers the fixed cost per uh, unit of production, uh, which gives uh, Cape Morningstar a, a structural uh, cost advantage in the right. marketplace. And, and what specifically in terms of working in a self-management style help those plants to be so efficient well i think uh, i think i touched on it in terms of the the project uh management and the um expansion uh it also helps with the the facet of innovation so we've had some great uh really brilliant ideas over the years in terms of uh plant operations and and uh um manufacturing we had a colleague uh uh terry kalsenai who theorized a better way of handling chemicals uh in the workplace and and material handling and he uh basically uh sketched out his idea on, on how to reconfigure the process and and got buy-in from people who would be affected by a change in the process and, and found some financing for a capital project and put it together and it ended up having a, a hugely impactful and tremendous return on investment. So um, innovation opportunities are available to everyone uh, at Morningstar. And um, um, we have a kind of a fictional apocryphal story of a, a fictional uh, tomato sorter, uh, minimum wage sorter named Susie Sorter. And if Susie uh, can theorize uh, 
uh, some technological breakthrough that um, uh, improves the rate of sorting, then uh, and, and she can sell it to the people who would be affected and find some financing and some backing for her idea. And she's free to start her own company and become the CEO of her own company. Uh, those kinds of opportunities are available to everyone. If we look around the the country outside of Morningstar, um, <clears throat> there's a gentleman, uh, uh, Richard Montañez at Frito-Lay, who uh, uh, had an idea. He was a janitor, basically a custodian, uh, but he had an idea for uh, um, spicy hot uh, Cheetos. And he got a meeting with the, the president of the company and uh, sold his idea. And now it's a multi-billion dollar business, as I understand. So um, opening up the voices of each and every person uh, to uh, innovate, uh, to think, to figure out how to do things better, that's, that's a tremendous uh, benefit of uh, organizational self-management. And in this example of of Susie Thought and you said her becoming our CEO, were there literally structures in place what the, that they might spin off a, a new company that Susie Thought would then have shares in? Is it Was there like a, a, a process for that? No, there's no process for it other than um, request and response. So if it's truly a breakthrough idea and Susie tru- truly has the entrepreneurial chops, uh, to found a startup based on that idea, uh, there are no inherent barriers preventing her from pursuing that uh, as far as she wants to go. And uh, the, the company, if it was a great idea and it was pertinent to the business, the company, I'm sure, would sponsor that. Um, so, no, it's more of a theoretical, yeah. uh, uh, apocryphal story of what could be if uh, people chose to go that route. But uh, as of now, no formal structures that I'm aware of. Right, right. But that, but that process of anyone who can come with up with an idea, as, and as long as they can get buy-in from those who are affected and and get the financing, they can um, they can just run with it. Sky's the limit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you, and you were in the finance role, right? So, would you find yourself being pitched these ideas from from everywhere in Morningstar? No, I wouldn't, uh, because um, Morningstar was really um, focused on perfecting processes, um, perfecting strategy, uh, expansions. Um, Even when it wasn't building new factories, it was expanding existing factories. There was always uh, expansion happening in the background almost on an annual basis. Uh, And then just the... um, repair and maintenance expense of a, a plant that runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week in a heavy manufacturing environment. Uh, those expenses are very high and required a lot of close scrutiny and management. So um, there was plenty to do. Uh, people didn't have a lot of time to you know, necessarily come up with a, a breakthrough um, new ideas for uh, pitching uh, financing. Right, right. The main focus was on expansion of using existing processes, right? Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, So 
so so the early part of your so that part of your that sort of phase of your career was Morningstar. And when did you when did you leave Morningstar? Um, I left uh, my full time role in two thousand three, and I uh, became a, a consultant uh, at that time. Um, I'd I'd been in the the industry at that point for about twenty two years straight. And right. uh, it's, uh, in the industry, you really don't get summers off. Uh, you just have to wave goodbye to summer and, and uh, get into to full-time work mode. Uh, I had two young daughters at that time, and, and uh, I wanted to spend more time with them and, and uh, have a little more variety in terms of uh, my engagements and uh, my energy. So uh, 2003 uh went on my own and uh have uh, been doing that ever since right and that was taking these principles into other organizations was that was that yes really? yes yeah. uh it's really uh three three prongs one is speaking one is writing and one is uh, uh consulting and so uh they all blend together uh which is great and uh so i've got a couple of books the one you held up uh, plus the no limits enterprise um involved in a number of uh collectives and groups um and uh do a number of speaking engagements uh uh was doing those internationally until covid hit um now more um domestically and uh consulting with companies uh helping advise them sometimes it's more in the nature of local optimization you know how can we make things better or get get uh, approach uh self-management perhaps without going uh completely into self-management but there are companies in the world that uh including some large companies that are interested in a complete transformation from yeah. command and control to a self-managed environment and so uh engage with those as well interesting and and I suppose a common question is going to be um, for people who are perhaps leading departments or teams within organizations, uh, and they hear these principles and see that their, their overall structure of the organization is bureaucratic, is command and control. And so then the question might be, well, what can I do in my team? Where do, where do you sort of start people off when they're constrained by the broader culture? Right. So, um, you're going to start somewhere. Um, I, uh, I like to, uh, just tap into the collective intelligence of a leadership team and, and, uh, get them, uh, thinking innovatively, uh, and imagining what experiments they could run, uh, that they could, uh, play with uh the results for which they could measure um to kind of take them in a direction uh where they have more distributed decision making less bureaucracy less uh, top-down command and control uh what kind of experiments could you run um and we uh, can uh, run a, a workshop for example and crowdsource uh the best thinking of a leadership team um to really come up with some experiments for which different leaders in that team can take ownership 
uh, measure the results, uh, feed the ones that work, kill the ones that don't work, uh, and iterate their way uh, toward better ways of working. Um, I don't believe there's a recipe or a checklist or a, a definitive trajectory toward uh, transforming uh, into a self-managed enterprise. Every culture is different, and culture is a key word um, because that's the, the shared mindset of the people inside the organization. Uh, so honoring the uniqueness of an uh, organizational culture, respecting the voices of the leaders in that organization, uh, having them come up with their own experiments, uh, yeah. and then having them own their own experiments, uh, having perhaps a CEO and invite uh, the leaders into that process with a keynote so that there's ownership from the very top of the organization. Uh, I think those are the kinds of approaches that, that make sense and uh, how to get started. Um, and we can also share uh, tooling. Uh, I've got a self-management canvas uh, on my website that's uh, Creative Commons, uh, downloadable. Okay. Anybody can take advantage of it. Um, it's, a, it's a canvas that uh, kind of allows individuals to identify uh, their purpose, uh, the what of their work, uh, the management aspects of the work, because uh, um, management is nothing more than planning, organizing, controlling, selecting, and coordinating, which we all do in our own lives. Uh, but planning is strategy, organizing is leadership, um, coordinating is teamwork, controlling is budgeting, selecting is hiring and firing. And that's the stuff of management. And so uh, what are the services that people are providing? Uh, what's the scope of their decision-making authority? Uh, to whom do they need to relate uh, on a regular basis in the workplace? How do they like to work? Uh, and communicate uh, where and when do they work. Those kinds of things are all addressed in this canvas. Um, it's a, an artifact that allows people to forge agreements with each other because of Morningstar. Uh, we've replaced bureaucracy with contracts between peers. And so um, it's about being explicit, uh, gaining clarity, gaining transparency, and gaining accountability. And uh, why wouldn't any company want that? Even if it's a hierarchical company, wouldn't you want that in your company? <laughs> right. So uh, this canvas is kind of universal. You can use it anywhere in any kind of company. Um, maybe you can use it uh, in, a, in a workshop to you know start to forge agreements uh, by and between peers and uh, or even between um subordinates and, and bosses in a hierarchy and uh, figure out exactly how you want to work together. Right. Yeah. And, and, and where that's most, most successful in terms of the work that you, you do with teams within organizations, do you, do you notice anything about the leaders in those organizations or, or, or the people you're interacting? You know, is there is a particular set of values or mindsets that really, Dot this well, and there are those that do less well. Have you not spotted any patterns? Yeah, well, I've I've given a lot of tours to a broad spectrum of of leaders, um, and and engaged and done keynotes with and Q and A sessions with and all the rest. And um, you know, there there are a, a spectrum of of leaders who are skeptics. 
I mean, they've, they've heard about the ideas of self-management. They're interested and curious, uh, but they've got a very, <laughs> very uh, <clears throat> impenetrable uh, veneer of skepticism. Um, uh, it's very hard to, to win people over to, to have them believe that this works. Um, yeah, I, I, when people ask for tours of Morningstar, I, I'll often say, well, because they'll say, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Right. And sometimes I turn that around and I say, well, you're not going to see it until you believe it. So let's start with the right mindset when you approach yeah. it and come in. Um, so skeptics are hard to win over. Uh, I've given keynotes and had people stand up in the back of the room at the end of the keynote and say, I don't believe you. That's that's fine. That's okay. That's that's perfectly okay. We're we're fine with that. Uh, you don't have to believe me. Uh, I'm just telling a story, and you know, take take what you want from it. Um, but then there are, are uh, there are vanguard leaders who um, they recognize that uh, that a failure to become an adaptive organization is uh, a pathway to extinction. Right. I mean, stats uh, show us that uh, one out of three companies probably won't exist in its current form in, in six years from now. Um, so, That's just um, extraordinary, isn't it? One in three companies will not exist in their current form in six years' time. So, um, you know, merged, acquired, dissolved, yeah. whatever. Yeah, uh, leave it. Taken over, but... Uh, um, the path toward resilience uh, uh, and uh, uh, and continued existence and thriving is is uh, becoming adaptive, uh, and self management is is one way to approach that. Um, becoming an adaptive organization is is really crucial. Uh, figuring out how to survive. It's about emergent strategy, not fixed strategy. It's about uh, creating a culture of uh, adaptiveness and, and agility and and really uh, distributed decision making um you know when you start to distribute decisions uh, throughout an enterprise it's magical in terms of engagement uh and and retention and, and those kinds of metrics because people start to feel like owners they start to have a, an ownership mindset um because they're in you know they own certain decision rights that are, are material and significant in the workplace so there are lots of aspects to uh the benefits of self-management that that some leaders grasp uh intuitively and uh and really want to learn more and learn how to apply it um we had one uh a very visionary young woman at the university of phoenix uh, here in Arizona, um, Phoenix University of Phoenix is one of the largest for-profit universities in the U.S. Um, thousands of employees around the country, and uh, she ran a, an IT and customer service department. And um, she got permission from her boss and the larger organization to experiment with self-management. So she had a leadership team. And they started a book club around Beyond Empowerment. Okay. Uh, so they read that book and studied it. And they theorized a, a pathway toward implementation. And they implemented self-management. And it took them about 12 months 
they were uh, completely successful. I was able to visit her and, and her leadership team uh, in her uh, venue there in Phoenix. And uh, the the interesting thing that they said around the table was that when we embraced these principles of self-management and rolled it out to our team, it wasn't uh, necessarily a completely smooth implementation. There were ups and downs and, and challenges, et cetera. We overcame them. And uh, the great thing about the principles is that they're so fundamental to uh, human interaction that not only did our work lives get better, but every aspect of our lives got better. Our, our community lives, our civic lives, our family lives, our church lives, our school life, every aspect of our lives got better as a result of embracing these universal, universal principles. Don't use force, keep commitments. Yeah. Yeah, that's extraordinary. It reminds me of the, the book, The Maverick by Ricardo Semler, which, and uh, he reports, right, that he has all these, the wives of many of the people who, who work for yeah. him at Semco. And the, yeah. that book is the story of Sem, Semco embracing yeah. self management. And the wives of the workers would come and thank him. You know, yes. you've transformed my husband, right? He's, yeah. he's a much better guy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yes. Because of the, the the way that the culture had yeah. uh, uh, transformed, and I think it goes both ways. I think if, if you're yeah. in a sort of dehumanized, highly hierarchical, yeah. you know, b- b- bullying boss, that's all going to go home with you, right? So it's yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it runs both ways. Dehumanized is a very interesting term, Richard, because. Um, culture is is very much shaped and affected by language. And so when we look at the language of human resources, um, yeah, the word human is in the word in the term human resources, but the language around human resources is quite dehumanizing when you think yeah. about it. Talk yeah. about man hours as if women don't exist. We talk about uh, head count as if people don't have bodies. <laughs> we, you know, the, the term employee uh, dictionary.com says that means somebody who works for another person for pay, which I doubt would be very inspiring to uh, Generation Z um, a person in the workplace. So it's quite uh, uh, dispiriting. Uh, the language we use around the whole human resources function really needs to change. Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I got irked by some emails I saw today you know, describing me as a resource. Yeah. Who are you calling a resource? Right. right. Yeah. You're yeah. a human being, as Henry Mintzberg said. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's very true. And I, I do wonder, you know, what's your take on this? You know, there seems to be, I know, I know there's been a few um, outspoken comments in the U.S. press about um, where, where are all the go-getters, right? There, there seems to be this this complaint right now in sort of corporate management circles that there are no no go-getters in companies. What's your response to that? Well, I think uh, it sounds like it's relating to that concept of quiet quitting that, that's yeah, been so that's prevalent right. yeah. lately. Um, uh, yeah, that, that certainly occurs, um, but there, there's a flip side of that, and that is the concept of quiet firing. So, uh, so some bosses are just uh, saying, well, you know, you don't seem to be uh, much of a go-getter, so I'm just going to kind of ignore you uh, until you quit uh, or uh, I have to let you go. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, 
not a, a an ethical good long-term strategy i don't think for an individual um if you truly don't believe uh in your organization or the mission or your role in it or why you're there or what your purpose is um people really need to consider the ethics of that and whether it's even ethical to remain uh, it's mm. interesting what elon musk did at, at twitter uh, with his opt-in email, uh, basically declared that the new Twitter uh, 2.0 was going to be hardcore, and uh, it gave people a button to click if they wished to opt in, and if they didn't, that was fine. Uh, it was completely their choice. Um, so um, uh, if people chose to opt in, um, they they kind of gave up their right to complain at that point. It's like, okay, I'm I'm saying that I'm agreeing with this new vision for Twitter and and aligning myself with that. Um, so, um, yeah, that was a very interesting strategy to kind of uh, eliminate that quiet quitting mentality, at least in that organization. Yeah. And part of the reason for the question was, I, I wonder when I reflect on that, you know, that where are all the go-getters? To what extent is that because this new generation is is perhaps more demanding, right, of of the of the work culture they're going to in, enter into and have higher expectations of being treated like an adult, of being um, given autonomy in the workplace. Like, is it that, or is it just a symptom of a wider societal malaise that people don't have motivation, or is it because we're just not? Many many companies are not creating cultures that meet the expectations of the employees today yeah i think it's all of the above um mm. and you know to what degree what percentage yeah. i don't know but all those things uh i'm sure pertain in, in different workplaces and and when different generational attitudes are studied toward uh work we do see differences uh in the different generations um and uh the the young young uh, people want to be want to have a voice Right, they absolutely do, um, and that is a, a hard reality. And and leaders and organizations have to recognize reality. Um, I spent a lot of time um, uh, teaching the principles of leadership from my dear friend, Doctor Peter Kestenbaum, uh, who's written a number of books, and and along with Peter Block, and also on his own, and he's got. Uh, a very simple concept of leadership uh, that we share extensively at Morningstar and elsewhere. Uh, it starts with courage, uh, and, but juxtaposed to courage is the idea of ethics, which is uh, caring, kindness, compassion, support, nurturing, uh, and empathy, but it's also right and wrong. Um, yeah. So balancing courage and, and uh, channeling your anxiety uh, into courage, uh, balanced with ethics, but then the other part uh, is reality, and you have to recognize the reality. You have to understand the terrain on which you're standing uh, and uh, what the constraints are, what the opportunities are, what the attitudes are of uh, the different generations, among other things, and be crystal clear about that. Um, and uh, people that don't understand those realities, uh, they're probably one of those one in three companies that are headed for extinction. Right. Yeah. 
yeah, that, that seems to be coming coming through. That concept of courage in this conversation, you know, it took courage for you to confront the the forklift driver. Hey, why are you you're using this this safety? You've talked a lot about you know one of the requirements of being effective in a self managed culture is that ability to you know to speak up and to challenge and make requests of others. And uh, so it makes sense to me that that's it that's a really important part of leadership, especially in this context, right? You, you want people who are going to ex- display courage in order for self-management yeah. to be most effective. Yeah, that's uh, Aristotle said, that's the starting point of uh, um, uh, anxiety is the starting point of, uh, or the gasoline, the fuel for courage. Uh, and courage is the starting point of leadership because it's the leadership attribute that makes all other leadership attributes possible. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that's that's where we start. Yeah, absolutely need that to make progress in the world. Right. Right. Um. And uh, yeah, and, and that you're right. That link with anxiety, right? That that. But it, the next step is the one that takes character, right? It's the yeah. knowledge. I feel anxious, right? I mean, that's these link together, right? Having some self empathy, some self read of your own bio signals, yes. your own feelings. Yeah. Uh, yes. And and then then um. And then transmuting that into a courageous act. Yes, yes, yes. And then the, the the balancing attribute of reality is having a vision. So reality is your right. current state. Vision is your desired future state. And uh, it's a state into which leaders can invite people to follow them on a journey toward that desired future state. Uh, and in self-management, leadership is invitational. It's not imposed. Uh, because there's no command and control authority. So it's all about inviting people uh, into a future. Yeah, Susie Sort has got to in- invite people into the into the new process. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And and because they all these link together, right? Because if 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 your only tool is the power of your invitation, then mm-hmm. you've got to make that vision very compelling. Right. Yes. So you've got to be able to articulate that, connect with yes. it, tell stories about it. Yes. Yeah, and that applies to everything in, in a self-managed workplace that could apply to implementing a new accounting system or yeah. you know, changing a, a motor or whatever uh, you want to change in a workplace, all based on invitation. That that's true, but is it yeah, is it Particularly true of a of a self managed environment where you can't just say, "I want you to do this." Yes. Where 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 you've only your only tool is invitation, then then it's a bigger requirement for you to be able to express a compelling vision. A- it absolutely is, and what that um, creates, we think, is uh, stronger, better leadership because. If you remove the power of force, uh, then leadership can only be exercised through uh, communication, uh, compassion, uh, invitation, and empathy uh, and language um, because you can't compel people to do anything. Um, And so we call that natural leadership. Um, Natural leadership, we think, is better, stronger leadership. Um, that's the kind of leadership that causes leadership muscles to continually get stronger. 
apologies for my phone going off in the middle. Leadership. Uh, muscles get stronger through the exercise of natural leadership and invitational leadership. Uh, if leaders can just tell people what to do uh, and with the expectation that their commands will be obeyed, uh, that's not really leadership. That's just telling people what to do. And we think that type of leadership causes leadership muscles to atrophy and get weaker. So uh, one of the benefits of self-management is the creation of uh, stronger, better leaders through natural leadership. Yeah. And that, that brings to mind the conversation I had with one of the founders of Ten Pines, who are an Argentinian software firm who run purely on self-management. And I asked him, what's your, you know, what's your approach to leadership development? He said, well, we, we don't have one. We don't, <laughs> we, because the culture itself is constantly breeding leaders. And he didn't, exactly. even, he, didn't, he didn't even want to use the, the word leader. He uses the term yeah. citizens, right? We're developing strong citizens mm. uh, who are inherently uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, invoking leadership qualities just in their day-to-day -day interactions with others. Mm -hmm. Great example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it also just, there's another company in the UK called... Um, Matt Black Systems and the story oh, yeah. I heard, yeah, I, I heard from the, the founder there was that one of the things he noticed when he flipped from you know, traditional management to mm -hmm. self-management was a lot of guys on the shop floor uh, who yep. would be, you know, very diffident and, you know, well, you know, they, they wouldn't want to sort of look you in the eye and just sort of got on yep. their jobs. And he said that, you know, one yep. of the things he noticed when he started bringing CEOs to the factory to show yep. them around. Yeah. All of the guys on the shop floor would now look these CEOs in the in the eye. They would right. like take the piss out of them to use an English yeah. expression. They would they would yeah. they would they saw them as a peer, right? So the, the yeah. confidence levels, the self esteem yeah. uh, of, of everybody in the company had had risen dramatically as a result yeah. of taking yeah. processes. Yeah, that's a great story. That's black. Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, that, that may be one of the examples where they've gone perhaps further than any others because effectively every single employee is a mini enterprise, right? They're, they're all right. not just autonomous in terms of sort of what they do day to day, but they're like mini businesses, right? Right, right. And that reminds uh, me of the hire group in uh, Qingdao, China, uh, where Zhang Remin uh, runs the world's largest appliance manufacturer with 70,000 employees worldwide. But he's created 4,000 self-managed teams. And uh, each of those teams, uh, well, most of them are, are uh, service teams. Um, but uh, 250 or so around that number are customer-facing uh, product and service teams. And then he has some innovation teams as well. And those are self-managed teams. Uh, and they, uh, uh, as small teams, have a tremendous uh, autonomy and ability to uh, choose their own suppliers and and uh, create their own new products and you know innovate and uh, self manage to the nth degree. So uh, micro enterprises uh, in hire is quite an amazing uh, story as well. Yes, uh, and that's coming out of China, which I guess also gives the light. Oh well, it's not going to work in our culture, right? Yeah, but it, yeah. it can work in um, in any any sort of country culture. Uh, yeah. can still sustain this style of work culture. Exactly.
Yeah. Yeah. People, yeah. Uh, people everywhere in the world appreciate those two principles. Yeah. Right. It's they where we start everywhere. this conversation, right? The, the, uh, the universal. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything we've not touched on? I mean, I suppose we haven't really talked specifically about this book. It's just a wonderful story of, uh, uh, of, of Todd and Barry Way. Um, yeah, an, an entrepreneur building up um, yeah, a food business, which I'm, I can kind of guess the inspiration. And goes through many of the scenarios um, yeah. that, you know, you can imagine facing in, in operating a self-managed culture, it's, uh, uh, including a bribery scandal, yes. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is resolved <laughs> through yeah, using exactly. the principles. Uh, so... Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, I suppose any um, any stories from the book that you'd want to share, or anything anything else to touch on in terms of beyond empowerment? Well, uh, you know, we have I don't know six or seven uh, little uh, vignettes uh, stories in the back of the book of companies that have experienced uh, experimented with various degrees of, of self management, uh, including a very interesting nonprofit uh, organization here in San Francisco, uh, the Delancey Street Foundation. Uh, where they actually uh, uh, bring in um, people who have been uh, uh, convicted of crimes, uh, various types of crimes uh, in the judicial system, and uh, they come in and and learn uh, powerful self-management principles of work and ethics and uh, communication and accountability uh, and uh, leave that institution, that uh, environment, uh, with entirely new lives. So uh, it's, uh, to me, it spoke of the transformational power of applying powerful principles in a sustained way. Right. Yeah. These can absolutely apply. Well, we've talked about it, but at the individual level, right, we can, we can take these on. Um, yeah, keeping commitments, staying accountable. Yeah, that's cool, isn't it? Um, awesome. Well, I, I thoroughly recommend the book um, to anybody listening. Uh, yeah, very accessible, and uh, yeah, you, you've got it all here. Really, uh, you've got you've got the story as you know, as well as the real real world examples. The Chinese ver- version uh, comes out next week. Ah. With, uh, bi- yeah, Amazon and the Business Agility Institute. Uh, so that comes out next week in an EPUB. Okay, so we're publishing this on the twentieth of January. So actually, it should be out. Awesome. So, we're, so yeah, it yeah. should be out uh, when people hear this. Uh, I guess it, I, I don't suppose we've got too many Chinese listeners, but if you know <laughs> any Chinese speaking people who might uh, want the book, then uh, yeah, uh, that's good. That's great. That's available. Um. Awesome. Well, um, you know, people want to uh, to imbibe of your wisdom in their own organizations. Uh, they should reach out to you at, uh, yeah, well, where should they go to? Uh, I would just go to my website, DougKirkPatrick.com. Okay. And they the can uh, yep. explore from there. Uh, and we'll put links to the book, including the Great. Chinese version. Uh, oh, also have German and Italian. <laughs> oh, okay, let's not let's not forget the Germans yeah. or the Italians. Uh, wonderful. All right. Uh, well, Doug, thank you once again. This has been a wonderful conversation. 
Yeah. Thank you for the work you're doing. Spreading the good word. Um, Appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. Enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you. I really enjoyed my time. All right. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.